Thank you for listening to the Council of Institutional Investors Voice of Corporate Governance, ranked by Feedspot as the number one corporate governance podcast globally. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CI members and the general public on significant developments in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets regulation and CII's related advocacy activities. This update covers the period from December 28th to January 29th, 2024. The following is my top 10 list of events over that period. Number 10, on December 28th, Commissioner Mark Ueda of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission was sworn in for his second term as a commissioner. Commissioner Ueda began his first term on June 30th, 2022, after being nominated by President Biden and confirmed by the U.S. Senate for a term expiring in 2023. In June 2023, President Biden nominated Commissioner Ueda for a second term expiring in 2028, and the Senate confirmed him on December 20th. Commissioner Ueda is a scheduled speaker at the Council of Institutional Investors Spring Conference be held on March 4th through the 6th at the Salamander, Washington, D.C. Number nine, on January 5th, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation Director Jonathan McKernan delivered a speech to the Association of American Law Schools. Director McKernan stated that the FDIC and other banking regulators should revisit the regulatory comfort that they have provided some of the largest asset managers as to how much they can own and what activities they may engage in without being found to control a banking organization. Director McKernan also said that the FDIC should consider taking a close look at the largest asset managers themselves and the activities of their investment stewardship teams and their interactions with management of publicly traded banking organizations and scrutinize how these asset managers coordinate their voting and other investment stewardship activities with each other and with other activist shareholders with an eye toward determining whether those asset managers are acting in concert with other shareholders. Director McKernan also emphasized that to the extent that asset managers leverage their purportedly passive index funds to advance ESG objectives or otherwise influence corporate policy, then there is a real and significant problem that the federal banking agencies need to get in front of quickly before their influence grows even larger. Director McKernan previously worked for former U.S. Senator Patrick J. Toomey of Pennsylvania and served on the staff of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Director McKernan began serving on the FDIC in January of 2023. Number eight. On January 19th, a bipartisan group of 33 members of the U.S. Congress sent a letter to the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. The letter expresses concern that the interagency Basel III endgame proposal ignores congressional intent to keep critical risk management tools accessible and low cost 
and will generate disincentives for prudent risk management strategies and drive up the cost of hedging for end users. Noting that futures and derivatives markets play a stabilizing role for prices, helping to insulate consumers and businesses from market instability while involving minimal risk for end users, the lawmakers argue that increasing regulatory capital changes for banks that provide end users with access to hedging markets and risk management tools is a misguided approach. Specifically, the lawmakers express concerns about two aspects of the proposal. One, the public listing requirement would make it more expensive for privately owned investment grade companies to hedge against risks. And two, the new capital requirements for credit valuation adjustment risk on derivative transactions could further penalize end users. Observing that banking organizations that facilitate uncleared swap transactions as swap dealers allocate capital on a business line basis. The members warn that disproportionate capital requirements for a certain business line or trading desk may cause banks to decrease their offerings of these risk-reducing tools, thereby dramatically decreasing liquidity in these markets and increasing the cost of hedging for end users. Number seven, during a January 17th fireside chat with Robert Weissman, president of Public Citizen, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler said that artificial intelligence is a net positive to society, but it comes with micro and macro risks. Chair Gensler explained that the micro risks that AI presents are biases, conflicts of interest, fraud, and AI washing, which helps mask the truth about investments. Chair Gensler said the SEC is creating ways to address those threats and is using standard means to deal with others. Chair Gensler also said crime and fraud are not new, but the tools that bad actors are using to perpetrate them are. Chair Gensler added regulation best interest and the obligation to fulfill fiduciary duties still apply and the investor always comes first. Gensler explained that AI's macro risk is the result of the new technology's propensity to centralize data. Gensler predicted that eventually there will be two or three base models or data aggregators that investors will rely on for information, creating what he termed a monoculture. Gensler warned if a financial crisis hits, you may find that many people were relying on the same data set. Chair Gensler said the challenge is how to keep a diversity of models and data systems, and we need to raise concerns about these challenges internationally. Number six, at a January 18th hearing of the U.S. House of Representatives Financial Services Subcommittee on Oversight Investigations, George Georgia, Associate Professor of Law at Emory University School of Law was the only witness who supported the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission's March 2022 proposed climate disclosure rule. The listeners of the Voice of Corporate Governance might recall my interview with Professor Georgia on this topic in May of 2022. In his testimony before the subcommittee, 
Professor Georgia, told members that the proposed rule is misunderstood and as a result has been subject to distorted legal analysis. Clear up any misconception, Professor Georgia explained the proposed rule, noting eight points. One, the SEC's proposals about information disclosure for purposes of capital market efficiency, investor protection, and capital formation. Two, the SEC cannot and does not aim to effectuate substantive regulation pertaining to climate change. Three, investor support for the SEC's rulemaking on climate-related disclosure is near universal. Four, many U.S. companies in different industries and of assorted sizes have also been proponents of climate-related disclosure. Five, because climate-related disclosure will help ensure securities price accuracy and market efficiency, it will benefit both retail individual investors and large institutional investors, regardless of their interest in or stance on climate change. Six, the proposed requirement to disclose greenhouse gas emissions is, is intended to give investors an understanding of the issuer's transition risk, a well-established and uncontested source of business risk that will remain present irrespective of what the SEC does. Seven, the SEC has sought to design a workable rule by incorporating liability safe harbors, delaying the effectiveness of certain provisions, and endorsing the use of estimates. And eight, by all indications, the SEC is refining the rule further to avoid unintended consequences for various entities, including small manufacturers, farmers, and others. National Association of Manufacturers Vice President of Domestic Policy, Charles Crane, criticized two provisions of the proposed rule in his testimony before the subcommittee. One, requiring manufacturers to track and report the greenhouse gas emissions of the suppliers and customers throughout their value chains. And two, requiring manufacturers to identify individual expenses throughout their operations that could be attributed to weather, climate events, climate-related risks, and transition activities. Mr. Crane said these two requirements would have a disproportionate impact on small and privately held manufacturers, and the SEC's cost-benefit analysis of them is lacking. Mr. Crane also predicted finalizing both provisions would undermine the bedrock principle of materiality at the heart of the Exchange Act reporting regime, distracting investors with pages of information irrelevant to their understanding of a business and calling into question the SEC's authority to issue such a wide-ranging rule. Subcommittee hearing witness Lawrence Cunningham, special counsel at Mayor Brown, posed six problems that he believed the disclosure rule presented. One, making companies report climate impact, not just climate risk, which investors do not need. Two, imposing millions of dollars in annual costs on companies with no clear benefit for investors. Three, compelling the disclosure of information that is inherently speculative and uncertain as likely to mislead investors as to inform them. Four, spurring lawsuits over disclosure adequacy which wastes resources even when baseless. Five, discouraging companies from being publicly traded, which deprives 
ordinary investors of opportunities and frustrates capital formation. And six, usurping state corporate law and company business judgment, which undermines investor rights and interests. Mr. Cunningham also told lawmakers that he believed that the final rules would be challenged in court because the SEC lacks clear congressional authorization to approve them and because the rules violate the First Amendment and the Administrative Procedure Act. Hearing witness William Schultz, the vice president of family-owned Schultz Fruit Ridge Farms, told the subcommittee, we do not have the resources to hire someone to focus on greenhouse gas emissions reporting that would be required under this rule, and I know others share my concern. Mr. Schultz said he worried that public companies that buy food would favor larger farms that have the resources to compile and provide this information. Mr. Schultz emphasized his family commitment to environmental stewardship and called the proposed rule a stark contrast to voluntary conservation, leading to an investment in paperwork and data collection at the expense of investing dollars on the ground, capturing carbon, reducing soil erosion, enhancing pollinator habitat, or making one less pass down the road. During the hearing, Representative Sean Caston of Illinois cited a new study by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which put a price tag of $617 billion on the cost of climate disasters over a recent five-year period. Number five, on January 24th, Senators John Tester of Montana and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona sent a letter to U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler. The letter expressed support that the Commission's March 2022 climate disclosure proposal, particularly the proposed Scope 3 emissions reporting requirements, could indirectly penalize small agricultural producers for doing business with publicly traded companies, arguing that the SEC has no business writing a rule that could require private agricultural firms to closely track the emissions related to their operations. The senators raised concerns that the proposed Scope 3 disclosure requirements could hurt smaller operations forced to absorb the burden and cost of collecting additional information and lead to more public companies working with larger producers that can more readily supply climate data. The senators stress, moreover, that if it is not possible to develop Scope 3 in a way that does not burden small businesses in a public company supply chain, including agricultural producers, it would be better to take it out of the final rule altogether. Accordingly, the senators urged the commission, when finalizing the proposal, to balance holding public companies accountable to their claims or commitments to shareholders on climate issues with also ensuring that the rule isn't creating significant new compliance costs for American small businesses. Number four, on January 18th, a group of 26 Republican state attorneys general file a brief with the New Orleans-based 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. The brief seeks to reverse a Texas federal judge's September decision that upheld a Department of Labor rule 
allowing retirement plan fiduciaries to consider ESG factors when selecting retirement plan investments. The state attorneys general argue that the district court improperly invoked the Chevron deference doctrine and deferred to the Department of Labor interpretation of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. The brief says that the Chevron deference doctrine does not apply to the Department of Labor in this case because federal law clearly requires retirement plans to act solely and exclusively for the financial benefit of participants. The brief also argues that the decision glossed over the Department of Labor's failure to engage in reasoned decision-making, accepting superficial justifications while ignoring the agency's inconsistent explanations, impermissible considerations, and failure to consider important aspects of the problem. Based on these circumstances, the brief says that if the Fifth Circuit concludes the Chevron deference doctrine is unwarranted in this case, it should wait to rule until the United States Supreme Court issues its decision in the Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo case. That decision is currently expected in June. Number three, on January 21st, ExxonMobil filed suit against Archuna Capital and Netherlands-based grassroots organization Follow This. In the lawsuit, ExxonMobil seeks approval from a judge to omit from its proxy ballot a shareholder proposal on greenhouse gas emissions. Proposal's resolution filed in September states, quote, shareholders support the company by an advisory vote to go beyond current plans, further accelerating the pace of emission reductions in the medium term for its greenhouse gas emissions across scope one, two, and three, and to summarize new plans, targets, and timetables, unquote. The lawsuit filed in a Texas federal district court argues that the shareholder proposal can be omitted from the proxy ballot because it deals with Exxon's ordinary business and seeks to directly interfere with management's business judgment and micromanage Exxon's core business, the energy and petrochemical products and services that ExxonMobil offers. Suit also makes the argument shareholder proposal is duplicative of other shareholder resolutions that came to votes previously and did not receive enough votes to qualify for resubmission. In the previous two years, shareholder proposals filed by Follow This, asking the company to set and publish medium and long-term targets to reduce the greenhouse gas of the company's operations and energy products consistent with the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement, came to votes. The proposal received 27% of the votes cast in 2022 and 10.5% in 2023. The ExxonMobil lawsuit alleges, like the previous proposals, the proposal being litigated is designed instead to serve Artuna Capitals and follow this as agenda to shrink the very company in which they are investing by constraining and micromanaging ExxonMobil's ordinary business operations. The company says in its suit that by asking ExxonMobil to change its day-to-day business by altering the mix of or even eliminating certain of the products that it sells, the proponents are forcing it to change the nature of its business operations or go out of business entirely. Or broadly, lawsuit criticizes the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission staff's November 2021 legal bulletin in which staff said going forward, 
when making no-action decisions, it will consider whether a proposal raises issues with a broad societal impact to the extent that these issues transcend the ordinary business of the company. The suit says this guidance can be at odds with the rule itself and is being used by activist organizations to pursue their personal preferences at the expense of shareholders. Attorney Con Hitchcock commented, Exxon is sending a message that the company would favor a broad ruling from the judge saying that anything related to oil and gas production is ordinary business, so Exxon could omit other similar proposals. Mr. Hitchcock predicted that it is unlikely there would be a decision on this case before ExxonMobil prints its proxy statement. Number two, on January 18th, as part of its board accountability project, the Council of Institutional Investors sent letters to the boards of three Russell 3000 companies inquiring how they plan to respond to the votes of directors that failed to win majority support in the period from July to December 2023. CII also sent letters to the board of five Russell 3000 companies who had shareholder proposals that won majority support during the same time period. Most companies have plurality voting standards for uncontested elections, which means that an incumbent director running uncontested needs only one vote to win. Each of the three companies where directors failed to garner majority support, BioLife Solutions, Play HES, and Skyline Champion, have plurality voting standards in place. During the same period in 2022, four directors had failed to receive majority support. The five majority votes on shareholder proposals included Conungra Brands, General Mills, and Texas Pacific Land. Those proposals asked the companies to grant shareholders the right to call a special meeting. At Aero Environment, the proposal called for declassifying the board of directors. And finally, the proposal at Lionsgate Entertainment requested the adoption of a one-share-one-vote structure. Most companies do not immediately implement proposals that win majority support. As of the date of this podcast, none of the five companies CII has written to appear to have taken steps to implement the requests in the proposals. CII member-backed corporate governance policies state that boards should be responsive to the interests of their shareholders by adopting the actions recommended in a majority-supported proposal. For more than 10 years, CII has monitored the implementation of majority-supported shareholder proposals as well as directors who failed to receive more for votes than against votes at U.S.-based Russell 3000 companies. You can access the full board accountability data set on CII's website. And the number one most Significant development in corporate governance capital markets regulation during the period from December 28th to January 29th, 2024, occurred on January 24th when the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission approved new rules to enhance transparency and investor protections that apply to shell companies known as Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, or SPACs. SPACs are a process by which private companies enter the public markets through mergers with shell companies known as DSPAC transactions. The SEC's rules raise the level of investor protection for this alternative means of going public to make those protections closer to the level investors currently have 
with the traditional initial public offering route. SEC Chair Gary Gensler commented at the open meeting that I think this is about treating like alike. What has developed over the years is a regulatory arbitrage. The reason that sponsors are able to do this is because of regulatory arbitrage. I think that's what this rule is addressing. The SEC adopted the rules by a 3-2 vote with Commissioners Hester Peirce and Mark Ueda dissenting. The rules strengthen or add required disclosures of three items. One, SPAC sponsors compensation and conflicts of interest. Two, equity dilution caused during the SPAC-DSPAC process. And three, information about target companies SPACs acquire. The rules also require certain target companies to be co-registrants with the acquiring SPAC, making them legally responsible for the contents of the DSPAC transaction. Forward-looking projections and DSPAC mergers will now carry similar liability as those disclosed in connection with traditional IPOs. The height of the SPAC boom in April 2021, CII Research and Education Fund publication identified nine hazards associated with SPACs for investors to consider and concluded that the SPAC model poses risk, particularly to those investors who hold on to their shares through the DSPAC merger transaction. The report urged caution until disclosure and terms evolved to become more shareholder friendly. Also in 2021, Council of Institutional Investors submitted four comment letters to the SEC raising concerns about NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange proposed listing standard changes that appeared to weaken investor protections and facilitate the use of SPACs. And in November 2021, CII filed an amicus brief in the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York in Assad versus Emerge Technology Acquisition Corp. The brief raised concerns that CII had identified with SPACs, including the dilution in the value of shareholdings resulting from the SPAC structure, as well as levels of compensation paid to SPAC sponsors and directors relative to risk. And from 2021, to 2023, CII released nine Voice of Corporate Governance podcasts on SPAC topics, including interviews with professors Michael Klausner, Usha Rodriguez, and Andrew Tuck. Those three professors and their related research on SPACs were referenced over 70 times in the SEC's final rule. And the final rules also referenced CII's June 9th, 2022 comment letter in response to the SEC proposal more than 30 times. Dissenting Commissioner Ueda called the rules crushingly burdensome for SPACs and pointed out that some aspects of the rules that extend required disclosures beyond those for traditional IPOs. Commissioner Hester Peirce asserted, are there problems? Certainly. But do a few errant birds Weren't calling the entire flock? No. SEC Chair Gary Gensler continued the avian theme in his concluding commentary. May this rule fly into the Federal Register, spread its wings, and protect investors. The rule becomes effective 125 days after publication 
in the Federal Register. SPAC IPOs constituted over half of public market entrants each year from 2020 through 2022. The SEC's March 2022 rule proposal dampened sponsor enthusiasm for creating new SPACs, but as SEC Director of the Division of Corporation Finance Eric Girding noted during the open meeting, SPACs still constituted over 40% of all IPOs in 2023. CI Research has observed that most dual-class entrants to the public markets in 2023 arrived through DSPAC mergers. That completes my monthly U.S. Corporate Governance and Capital Markets update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks again for listening to the Voice of Corporate Governance. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.